Hey everybody, welcome to episode 89 of the Masterclass. My name is Cam, his name is Dave, and this episode is going to be in Fast Forward. Hello? That pause was really four minutes long, just so you know. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Hello, Cam. It's trying to be exuberant, get this show off to a rocking start. You, okay. <laughs> Apparently Dave did not appreciate that intro. Hello, friendly listeners. How are you? Welcome to episode 89 of the Masterclass. We're here again in Dave's lovely basement. Yes. Surrounded by concrete and two-by-fours. It's very manly. You could say that, yes. Yes, except for all the uh, girls' clothing behind us. <laughs> the hand-me-downs. Hey, man. Hand-me-downs are great. As long as you remember that they're there, because we generally, they go into storage, and then four years after a little sister could wear them, we realized they're there. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsies. So yeah. Well, it's all good. Uh hey Dave. Hey Cam. Uh I thought it would be fun to quickly before we jump into chapter twenty five of Matthew mm-hmm. um to share uh with the listeners what we've either been reading or listening to recently if you think that it's something that they might like. Sure. So I'll go first to give you time to think. <laughs> All right. Uh, so recently I have rediscovered um, Shane and Shane, the musical duo. Mm-hmm. And they started, I want to say, a couple of years ago. It might have even been like four years ago. Because I think I was still at the church when I discovered this. This thing called the Worship Initiative. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of those monthly subscription things, but you get access to like uh, online courses on guitar and piano and drums and vocals and, you know, lyrics and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's essentially supposed to be a resource for people that are in some sort of musical setting mm-hmm. in the church, um, which is cool if you're, if you're one of those folks. And uh, but what's I think the best outcome of this whole worship initiative thing is they have 11 albums that they've put out over the years. Wow. Over the course of like these four years, um, it's like worship initiative volume one to, you know, all the way through 11. And it's just them and their band friends uh, recording um, worship music. So some hymns, some new stuff, some late 90s, early 2000s stuff, some really, you know, really, really modern stuff and some older stuff. And you get a a big spread on each album of, you know, different uh, uh, eras of, of worship music. And it's their version of each song. So they do things a little differently. They may play them differently musically. They do different things differently vocally, obviously, because they can sing the pants. Well, I shouldn't say they can sing the pants off of people. That's not what you want to do in a worship <laughs> setting, Dave. Well, maybe King David danced naked before the Lord. Yeah, but we shouldn't be doing that in church on Sundays. To other people. Yeah. Okay. I don't, oh, dude. Mm. See, now I have a visual of church, and now I feel like a horrible human, and I also want to throw up a little bit. So <laughs> thank you for that. So anyways, if you are uh, a fan of quality music, um, made by quality people about quality things like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Check out the Worship Initiative albums one through eleven. I know for a fact they're all on Apple Music. I can pretty much guarantee, without actually checking that statement, that they're on Spotify as well. 
Or you could, like, I don't know, like the 90s, just go buy the album. <laughs> Except it'd probably be just a digital download, but, you know, whatever. Yes. So that's my suggestion, Dave. Do you have anything that you want to suggest? Well, no, that I have a suggestion, but I have recently, I don't know if the discovered is the word, but embraced Spotify. Caroline's been, and I don't know if we've said this on there, but my daughter Caroline is engaged to be married, so she'll be getting she married. She is indeed. Have we decided if we like the guy? Oh, yet? yeah. Yeah, we like uh, him a lot. Okay, well, um, jury's still out in my book. I've only met him for like five <laughs> seconds. Um, so right now, he has chosen to go to Houston during the Super Bowl to witness to... Drunk football fans? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. See, well, this is me being silly, well, ruining things. Th- there is a little bit of that, but no, he's going down there with a group that is targeting prostitutes, sex trafficking. Which and, I'm sure during the Super Bowl is just yeah. There's crazy. already been a, there's already been arrest, but so he's chosen to take his time to go down there, and it's been pretty cool how God has provided him with a place to stay, has provided him with the money to get down there, and so. Yeah, that's what he's choosing to do with his time. So, just a practical question. How does one find... Like, I feel like if you're going to go witness the college student... There's a ministry down there. Okay. There's a ministry. I'm like, he's not on the streets. No. I'm like, because that's how you wind up in jail, Yeah, exactly. And don't wind up getting married to Caroline. (laughs) That's a bad idea. Yeah. Okay, so there's... There's a ministry, and, and it's so, yeah. And I... I think it's very a very very real possibility that his role while he is down there, and I don't know this for a fact, but I think it's a possibility of your job is to do nothing but pray. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's multiple things that. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is put a what is he nineteen twenty? Yeah, he's twenty. So. Put you know a twenty year old kid in a position where he could wind up in jail, <laughs> even though he's trying to do nothing but the right thing. Yeah. Oh, so gosh, to be honest, yeah. I don't know totally the details, but. God has very much worked in getting him down there, so that's been, I think, cool for all of us just to see. So, um, but anyway, Spotify. Spotify. They have a playlist for their wedding that they're putting together, and so they gave me the login information, and I started doing the whole. Oh, this is this is kind of cool. So yes, I have my eclectic mix of like Rich Mullins and oh Newsboys and things like that with. Stone Temple Pilots, <laughs> uh, Johnny Cash, Lenny Kravitz. Oh boy! Yeah, so it's like I'm. It's it's very Roger Miller, which I don't I, know. You don't even know who Roger no, Miller I don't. is. King of the Road. Dang me! But anyway, yeah, I very quickly filled up my. I came up with like a hundred songs of just kind of random like. Oh, I haven't heard this in a really long time. This would be fun. And it is the most random group of songs that they've put together. What what are the most awkward back-to-back songs on that list? Well, Lenny Kravitz has Mr. Cab Driver, which is one of my all-time okay. favorites, which That's deals- like early Lenny Kravitz, right? Early Lenny Kravitz, yeah. And it and it deals with um being black and trying to get a a taxi mm-hmm. and basically he tells the cab driver what he can do 
<laughs> and then to have one of my Jesus songs come up after that, it's kind of like, oh. But, you know, anyway, he also has a, Lenny Kravitz also has a cool Black Jesus song in his empty hands. Mm, I don't know but, if I've heard that one. Yeah, so it's... I didn't know you were such a connoisseur of the Kravitz, Dave. Well, Do it, you prefer dreadlocked Lenny or Afro oh, Lenny? Oh, very much dreadlocked. Yeah, those were, like, impressively long yeah. and thick. So, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, Lenny Kravitz and... Um, just, yeah, random songs for me that uh, generally invoke some sort of uh, memory or feeling or something like that. And that um, it, it, it's truly like, I, I like almost every song in this playlist has some sort of like, like there's almost a visceral sort of um feeling to every every song that comes on there's some sort of memory um my dad and I used to go fishing on Sunday mornings when I was growing up that was church for me was going fishing with my dad and listening to Casey Kasem in American Top 40 oh boy and so even some of the songs that I listen to on there are like 70s and for some reason, I have like a, a fondness for like mellow seventies, like Neil Diamond. Hence, my daughter's name is Caroline. Mm. <laughs> it's all coming together now. Yes. Uh, but reaching out. <laughs> so, but on a totally unrelated. The other thing is, I'm re-listening to Divine Conspiracy once again. And it always comes back to that, doesn't it? It's just funny because, yeah, so I've been listening to that. I've been hitting some bookmarks on that as it as he plays and, and recommends some books or things like that. And um, I don't even know that I have a total answer for this, but I know there's kind of a um, and, and you all are going to have to look this up because I'm not going to give you any kind of background on this. But the about being a missional church. And what that means in America in 2017, uh, being a missional Christian, being a vocational Christian. Um, and Are you for these things or against these things? I'm, I'm very much, and that's why I went back to Dallas Willard, is, is I'm very much a, I believe people can be a Christian wherever they are. Yes. And I, I think um, this concept, that we have to be in full-time ministry, that we have to be missionaries. Well, we can be mission, we can be missionaries where we are. And so I guess that's what just keeps hitting back at me. I feel like God is speaking to me of you can you are he wants us to be Christians where we are and he wants us to be witnessing to those people who are in our lives and I will just say that I am guilty of thinking, oh, as somebody who was in full-time ministry, romanticizing what it means to be in full-time ministry. Even though you Even though left. I left it for a very good reason and yeah. had that reaffirmed for me even in the past year, which I'm not sure we even talked about. I might need to off the air. Hold out on me, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but just that that sense of... The divine conspiracy is so good about, well, in Dallas Willard, 
is just so good about, it's not about what you do and you don't do. It's really not even about what you believe and what you don't believe. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's blasphemy, Dave. It's not about doctrine. It's not about dogma. <laughs> Uh, it's not about believing the right things. And and I guess I, I I'll just say this, that I don't completely want to go down this road, but I'm just, I, I've been dumbfounded by much of what's going on in our world today as to how people that I consider uh, Christians, people that are seeking God and after his heart can believe something completely different than what I believe. And I think God has really just been convicting me that uh, those are peripheral things, and things like uh, you know how I view like I can I I'm completely good with accepting somebody's view on things like the sacraments of you know communion. I'm good with letting people be where they're at with infant baptism. You know things that have traditionally been some of the big issues within the church. But yet I have this huge issue with like politics right now is, is, is my thing. And just like, just going, how can somebody who's a Christian believe this, that, you know, different than what I believe or what I feel like the Bible says. And God is really convicting me that one, that's not my job to do. And two, that if I really believe something and value something and hold something to be true, then my life needs to reflect that. And I guess if I was going to say anything to our listeners, that um, being posting things on social media is not being active in your faith. I'm not saying you shouldn't post things on social media, but I, I'm saying this for me, and I'm saying I'm this a for Twitter every, evangelist, and I'm Dave. saying this for everybody. But I I came across the the term slack. Slacktivist? Slacktivist? Is that right? Instead of being an activist, kind of the idea is if I post something on social media, I get to be an activist without really doing anything, and it's a slacktivist. I hate English sometimes. I do too. But just anyway. Ruin it with words like that. But it just kind of it, it, it hit home to me of just don't be putting it on social media unless you're doing it. Well, and, and even in that, it needs to be sort of a... And here's what... And I didn't intend to go down this road. No, and we're going to. And I wrote down what I was going to say about your first point, so I don't forget it, because I want to circle, I want to circle back and, and talk about that. But social media is a self-perpetuating issue. Well, especially if you follow people that are like-minded to you. Exactly. So yeah, you, there's multiple problems with it. If you, if you only follow people that you agree with, you are only going to become more entrenched in those ways and less willing to even acknowledge that there is another view or multiple other views, let alone converse and engage with people that have those views. Much like if you're a conservative Republican and you only watch Fox News or you're like way, way right wing and Breitbart and, and some of the other far, the if that's all you read and that's all that you are exposed to, you're just going to self-perpetuate your uh, um, encampment in that side, or if you're a Democrat 
and all you listen to is CNN or um, <coughs> stuff like that, or if you go far, far left to some of the crazy stuff that I don't even know about yeah, that's out there, the, the further you're going to become encamped and that sort of stuff. And so when you follow people on social media that are uh, your same uh, religion, your same socioeconomic class, your same uh, skin color, uh, your same political party, uh, your same favorite band, it, it becomes this, you know, the church term holy huddle, but it becomes this group of people where you're all patting each other in the back and everyone else is wrong. So that's one problem with, with social media or potential problem. If you're smart and you allow yourself to be challenged by the people you follow, then you might have a, a more um, even uh, understanding of what's going on. That's really hard to do, though, because there are a lot of people that you disagree with, mm-hmm. and it's a lot easier to be told that you're right and smart and beautiful and wonderful and right about everything than it is to be challenged by somebody who thinks completely different than you are. The other problem with social media is that whenever you post something on social media, like, I am guilty. If you if you check my Twitter feed, twitter.com slash Cam Brennan, you will see a number of my tweets in the last few days about how much I think Trump is a giant (laughs) absolute child and he's acting like a child. And I think he's completely unqualified to be the president. And I think he's screwing with the power that he has, you know, people got an Obama for all of his executive orders and all it seems, it seems that's all Donald Trump has done besides fire the attorney general. Well, but he, he has 14 executive orders in the first in, week. In and, the first week. And Obama had 13, which was both the record. So an executive order doesn't want to be outdone. But my point is, my point is, when I'm posting those things. But your seams isn't completely off base, I guess is all I was saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't know the exact number. But, but again, most of my news comes from CNN, BBC, and then... Um, People like New York Times, that sort of stuff. Um, so I am going to be my news input is going to be far more against Donald Trump and um, the conservative party than someone whose main sources are Fox News or um, I don't even know what newspaper that would be. But my point is too about this is is I'm you know writing these things or retweeting these things. And essentially all I'm doing is I'm yelling into the void. It's my way to get my feelings off of my chest and go, yeah, I said it good without having the repercussions of someone saying, Hey, you don't hold on a minute. You said this, but here's, here's what you need to consider because if someone does that to me on Twitter, I can just block them, which I haven't because no one's responded, (laughs) which is probably a good thing. But my point is like, you can get that satisfaction of, Oh yeah, I just said that or said them, or I just subtweeted that person and they don't know about it because I'm clever. And you just shout it out there into the void and it just hangs there. Mm -hmm. And generally if you're someone famous and you say something on Twitter, all you get is hate back for the most part. And so instead of having a conversation with another human being at a table or in the car or on a walk where you can actually have a conversation and get some back and forth, social media just lets us fire off these like little grenades and we don't have to deal with the consequences if we don't want to because we can just close Twitter for a bit or just ignore the people. 
Um, but in a real conversation with someone who disagrees with you, that's not necessarily an option. Absolutely. And if there's one thing that Jesus did, <laughs> let's bring this back to him, is how many times did he have conversations with the very people who would wind up, kill, wind up killing him? Yeah. And he was confrontational. He was brash. At some points, he was just downright uh, cutthroat with them. But it wasn't over Twitter. It was to their faces. And he did so because he was bringing the truth, not his opinion, not his uh, biased approach to politics or whatever. It was, this is the truth. Here is the truth. Here's what you're doing. Here's how you contradict the truth. Have a nice day. But it was in person. And I don't think that, I can't believe I just made a comparison between how Jesus talked to the Pharisees and how we handle Twitter. I don't know if that's right. But I, do you get what I'm, what I'm trying to say? Well, I get what you're trying to say. And I guess one of the things that, again, much of what I'm sharing is, I feel like what I'm wrestling with with God, where I'm at on things. But all things said... Jesus spoke to the people that were quote-unquote believers, the religious leaders of his day. His message was not to the, uh, to the people. Well, I guess I shouldn't say his message was not. His, his direct sort of like ship up, shape, ship, <laughs> ship up, shape out, ship out, shape out, ship um, I'm just impressed you didn't cuss. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had to pause for a second <laughs> going, did I just cuss? His, 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 his harshest words were for the re- religious leaders of his day, and it was not for the sinners. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it was not for the people that were outside the church. It was not for the people that, you know. Well, and that gets us back to our discussion of, uh, on church discipline from... A previous episode, mm-hmm. and the this idea that the church is is so eager to judge people outside of the church for not living Christian lives to to get all over the homosexual community because they're living in sin, and they're so busy doing that that they don't take care of judging the sin inside of the church, mm-hmm. the divorce rate inside of the church, the adultery rate inside of the church, right. You know, and then okay, let's back it off a bit. How about the selfishness inside the church? How about the um, desire for power and money inside the church? Right, combating the American dream equals Christianity inside the church, which it doesn't. It completely contradicts. We're too bu- we're too busy fighting these evils outside of the church that we don't. And I, again, generalizations. There are going to be many, many circumstances where what I'm saying is completely incorrect for your church. And if you're at a church that is combating the stuff inside the church, don't leave. Stay. Bring your friends. Like that's a mm-hmm. do that. Tell people about it. Tell us about it. But the overwhelming majority of people, I believe, have the experience where that is not the case. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a good time for me to circle back to the very beginning where you said that. A lot of people feel like they have to be in full-time ministry if they're going to do God's work or something mm-hmm. rough. Sure, the, sure. The point was we have this desire to like be in full-time ministry because that makes us like real Christians, right? 
And so my thought that I had while you were saying this was, is it possible that people feel the need to be in full-time ministry because the church is really good at making people who are good at church and not necessarily people who are good at being a Christian outside of church? Hmm. My initial gut is yes. Yes. I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, I, 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 I agree with what you were saying. I mean, I think we, that, yeah. And I, and I, and I'm drawing a blank on the words that I want to use right now in terms of what, when I was listening to Dallas Willard and what he was talking about. So I, I wasn't prepared to, <laughs> that's my hesitant is more just those words are not coming to me. Um, and maybe I'll have to send them to you so you can put them in the show notes. But truly I like, I, it, 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 this is one of those moments where I feel like it is just on the tip of my tongue. It's on the forefront of my brain and I'm just not able to bring forth what it was that I read, what it was that I was wrestling with because yeah, I'm just I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that. I agree with what you're saying. I was ready to to kind of give more of a quote, and it just wasn't there. So that was more what my my pause, my hesitation was than than disagreeing with you. So I will find that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I guess my reason, I mean, the reason I even had that thought was because of how of what me and you have done. And what me and you have gone through. We both, you know, became Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, high school, really? When you kind of yeah. decided. Serious. Yeah. Uh, go off to college, decide what I want to do with my life. Well, I should go into ministry because that's what. That's what Christians do. Exactly. So you go into ministry. You lasted about three times longer than I did. Yeah, but it was just the same thing over and over again three times <laughs> instead of just once. Um, yeah, so you were at nine years. Mm-hmm. I was three and a half. Yeah, it was literally two years, three years, four years. Uh, you know, you increased your tolerance. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and then we both wound up leaving the church mm-hmm. as far as working. As being paid yeah, Christians. We, we, we left, we <laughs> left full-time ministry and got real jobs. If I can use quotations there. Yeah. Youth pastor is not a real pastor. I will punch <laughs> you in the face. Um, and I think part of my issue, and, and I've you know shared some of this with Dave off the air about just even this podcast and a desire to grow the audience and a desire to make money. And I have this innate like, kickback of no this is a ministry this is we're talking about jesus it shouldn't be about numbers and it shouldn't be about making money and that's like this inherent thing in my in my you know uh, brain that's like if you're a good christian you'll work for the church if you're a good christian it's it's about doing ministry and it's not about you know what the world deems is success and and what's ridiculous about that on a few fronts is that 
the majority of Christians, and by majority, I mean probably 99% of Christians on the planet are not full-time ministers or pastors. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, my church has, what, four or 500 people? I think there's like, let's see, lead pastor, two campus pastors, children's pastor, youth pastor. Five full-time people. That's anywhere from 1% to 1.8% of the church's, you know, congregation is paid. So if you extrapolate that across the planet, and I feel like that's a pretty fair, uh, you know, ratio, you're looking at 98 to 99% of Christians on the planet are not in full-time ministry. Yet... I don't know if other people feel this way. It seems to me that we're really good at making people good at church. I would agree. And if you're really good at church, then you should work for the church, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm probably being uh, unfair and overgeneral again. Um, but what I remember um, back when I worked at the churches, it was like my last year. Um, one of the church um, members was going to lead a Sunday Bible study and like during one of the services, and he wanted a good book to go over with the people in the class. And I just finished reading Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, which is Tim Keller's book on work and why work mm-hmm. is important and why work is a biblical mandate and why God has us work and what Yo, it means to work as we a Christian. We were designed for work. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to put that in the show notes. If you haven't read Every, Every Good, Good Endeavor, Endeavor by Tim Keller, you should do so because it is so stinking good. Anyway, so I suggested the book to him and he'd never heard of it. Um, and I explained to him what it was about. It's about what I just said. It's about work. It's about why we do it. It's about what being a Christian in your work environment is like. It's about the purpose of work and how it relates to God and our relationship with him and all that stuff. And immediately he said, yes, that's the book we're going to cover because that is what people like don't get. Mm-hmm. We get all this practical application in church, and it's all very personal. you know. And it all boils down to, what do we always say? Pray, read your Bible spend time with God, be in Christian community. Mm-hmm. Which is great. That doesn't necessarily tell me how to be a Christian at my day job as a web developer. It doesn't tell Dave how to be a Christian as a police officer when he's had a person just try and punch him and escape arrest. <laughs> or he's dealing with a situation you know, where a mom and a daughter are hysterical because the dad was beating him and Dave was the first to report and had to arrest the dad. Like you don't learn that stuff on Sunday and, and middle school teachers don't learn on Sunday mornings, how to be good middle school teachers or accountants, how to be good, honest, ethical accountants, right? Like these are things that are important because so many people that are Christians are not full-time ministers. Mm -hmm. The church doesn't exist to make, people good at church. The church exists to bring people together 
to build one another up so that when they spend 40 to 60 hours a week at their job, they are able to bring the kingdom with them to act as God would act and to show the light of Jesus to the people that they work with. You spend the most time of your life with the people that you work with. Mm, Yeah. And it should be the primary goal, in my estimation, of the church to make sure that the Christians entering the workforce are fully prepared to work and to serve God in those roles. And how do you do that? I don't know. I have a few ideas, but it seems to me that the abs- the focus of what we do on Sundays needs to shift from how do I make myself feel good and feel better and know that, that Jesus loves me, which is important, but that goal should, the focus should shift to how can I take what I'm learning here and how does that affect me at 3.30 on a Tuesday afternoon when I got some angry person in my office yelling at me? Right. Yes. And, and I get that that's how is a pastor supposed to teach a doctor, a garbage man, and a bank teller how to be a Christian at their job? Those are all very different jobs that require very different skill sets and very different environments. But the point is, the focus of the message should be about making our relationship with Jesus so real and so um, present that the truths we learn on Sunday become obvious throughout the week. Not just memorizing scripture and not just saying, oh yeah, I know Jesus died for me. Everything's going to be okay. Which again, is true and good and wonderful and awesome. But it should also be about when I'm in those moments in my week, I'm reflect, I'm able to recall what I've been learning. And it's not just some trite, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, a little like quippy three points that, you know, I'll mm-hmm. start with the same letter. It's, no, I remember at Bible study on Wednesday night or at Life Group or at church on Sunday, we talked about what it means to be humble. And in this situation, humility looks like this. Or in this situation, sacrifice looks like this. Or in this situation, loving my neighbor looks like this. And I know that because I'm encouraged and equipped and built up as a, uh, I was going to say lay, but that's such a church word. <laughs> I'm built up as a member of the workforce to bring the kingdom of God with me where I go. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is a fundamental shift in how we approach teaching and uh, leading people at church. <laughs> and please, if, 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 if I'm wrong, tell me. Please. Just because I speak loudly doesn't mean that I'm right. And if you're at a church where you've experienced this sort of stuff, let us know. Tell us your experience. If you're someone who wants to be uh, at a place like that, tell us, let us know. It's one thing, again, because if not, I'm just yelling into the void now. This is my version of Twitter. I'm just yelling at my podcast. So one of the things that moment that I had after leaving the church is I wholeheartedly agree with the idea of sabbatical. And after seven years of being in ministry, taking that time. I've also thought 
it would be good for the person who is in ministry during their sabbatical to take a part-time job waiting tables, serving coffee, tending bar, collecting trash. I don't know what it is, but I think it would be really good for those who work full-time in the church to go do a job that is not ministry-related. Now, for me personally, this is going to sound kind of crazy maybe to some folks, being a cop is easier than being a youth pastor. But I do think you gain an appreciation doing those jobs that are not directly related to ministry. And even in that, it's, it's really about everybody that you uh, come in contact with. Um, you know, whether that be the person, you know, if, if you're, uh, uh, you know, every morning on your way to work, you stop and get coffee and you see the same person or a couple of people working behind that counter, there should be a relationship being built there. Um, you know, we, uh, we take signing lessons as in American sign language for our son will be. And we've been doing that for almost a year now. And I've been inviting our tutor to come to church with us. And he's promised me that in February that he's going to come. And I'm hoping that he does because I want him to know Jesus. And, oh, here's another shocker for a lot of you folks out there. He's homosexual. And we invite him into our house on a weekly basis. And I hope, I hope, my prayer genuinely is that Christ is modeled for him by me and my family. And I believe that. I believe it is. But it's nothing that we have done. It is truly, I hope, I mean, it is truly, it has to be God. It has to be God because we have flaws too. Our house is a zoo. <laughs> Our house is crazy. Um, but I, I, I just, I know, I, I guess I know, I know with all my heart that when he comes into our house, he experiences Jesus. There's no doubt in my mind that that happens. And so, I don't know, I don't mean to preach and I don't mean to get on my soapbox uh, because I'm humbled by the fact that God ever uses any of us. Um, and I'm, <laughs> that was the other one that I've mentioned a while back was uh, the whole, um, the Insanity of God book that I would listen to a while back. Now Melissa's reading it. God does not need us. Like there's so many examples in that book of where God moves without us. And it is such, it is such a thrill to partner with him in the advancement of the kingdom. Um, I wonder why I ever let anything else become a priority. That was a very good question. So, anyway, <laughs> interesting wow. little beginning there. Yeah, geez. All right. That was like, all right. Yeah. 20 minutes down, maybe. <laughs> At least. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, man. This might be a long one. Uh, buckle in. 
ladies and gentlemen. Um, but if you do want to get in touch with us based on anything that we've said or we're going to say later on in this episode, um, again, we would really like that. Uh, you can do so on Twitter if you want to yell into the void directly at somebody. Dave's at David J. Hogue, H-O-G-U-E for the last name. I'm at Cam Brennan, and you can email us hello at Super Megacorp if that's more your style. And if you want to uh, support what we're doing here, you can go to patreon.com slash Super Megacorp and join Katie and Wilby as our monthly supporters who help us run this show for free. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is so cool. So cool, so cool. But now that we've had that lovely, terrible segue, <laughs> we're in Matthew 25. We're in, oh, well, you know, I'm hard on myself, Dave. When it comes to, you know, this sort of stuff, not when it comes to working out and eating healthy. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. All right. So Matthew 25, I think we're just going to read the first parable. Is that what you think, sir? Yes, the parable of the ten virgins. All right. Uh, do you want to do the honors? Sure. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and come out to meet him. Then to those virgins, ro- then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. All right, so we've got some more uh, end time stuff here, but in a, in a different uh, genre. We're back to parables, which <laughs> I don't know about you, Dave, but I enjoy a good parable. I would agree. Uh, this one seems rather straightforward, so I think we should just dive into uh, what you just read for us. So we've got this really weird situation going on. I know I joked about it before we went on air, but this really strikes me as like the Bachelor 20 <laughs> AD, you know? And you've got these these 10 ladies uh, who have their lamps, and they went to go meet the bridegroom. Five of them brought enough uh, extra oil to keep their lamp burning all night, and five didn't. The bridegroom finally shows up. Yay, let's go meet him. And then the wise ones are really shrewd. The ones that forgot their oil, they're like, hey, can we borrow some? Because, like, we forgot it. And they say, no, go back to the dealers and get your own oil. I'm going to go meet this fella in full light. And so my first reaction is like, why don't the the foolish ones just follow the wise ones? They've got the lamps, just follow them. Well, that that was, I've always wondered that myself as well. That, But maybe they were too foolish to think of that. That, that is possible, yes. Uh, so anyways, they don't do it. 
they get uh, to where they're going, and the bridegroom brings in the five wise ones that were prepared to meet him for when he came, though they didn't know when he would show up. They brought the necessary things in order to wait for him. And then when the five who were foolish came back after apparently going and getting more oil and then coming all the way back, he says, I don't know you, and shuts the door in their faces. Yeah. That about sum it up? That does sum it up. So, I mean, I feel like I get what's going on here, um, but do you want to maybe tell me what you think and pretend that I've never heard this parable before? <laughs> well, that sounded incredibly cocky. <laughs> that is not how I meant for that to come out. I am sorry. How about you just tell me what you're thinking and forget what I just said? <laughs> sure. Thank you. Uh, this is one of those ones where I guess for me personally, I was tempted to get caught up in the minutiae, which I don't know, it may have been last year early on when we were first uh, came across parables was I think there's there can be a tendency to get too caught up into the, well, why are they virgins? Why are there 10 of them? Why do five have this and five don't? Why do they have lamps? Why is there oil? Why is there not oil? And I truly think this is about being prepared for the second coming of Jesus. And that if you are not prepared, there is not going to kind of be this second chance to get the oil that you need or do what you need uh, to be prepared uh, for Jesus. And I've read um, a half dozen different articles on this. Uh, over the course of the week, kind of looking at this. And I do find that there are kind of those, there are pastors, there are teachers who want to go, well, this is the symbolism of the bridegroom, and this is the symbolism of this. And have you ever noticed that they don't mention the bride in this story? Why is it that there's no bride mentioned? Why do they talk about the bridegroom? Because it's the bachelor AD20, that's why. and wholeheartedly this is again um back in matthew 24 i think verse 3 this whole kind of everything that we've entered into in terms of the end times and the signs and the things like that is the result of uh, the disciples asking jesus you know what are the signs what are the what it's going to point to your second coming which even in that, I think there's a little bit of how did they know there was going to be a second coming, that sort of thing. And as I've, I've even revisited some of the things that we've already discussed in, in Matthew 24 and 25, I think Jesus is actually being fairly clear um, as far as parables go in terms of you need to be ready for when it happens because if you wait until the signs come, it's going to be too late. And the other thing that I've sort of landed on a little bit personally on all this is I think the second coming is, even though he didn't know the day or the hour, I think Jesus truly had this understanding with his disciples of it's going to be longer than you think. And so it's silly to kind of go, I'm going to wait until I can get my act together and at the last minute do all the right things. Yeah, no 11th hour, you know. Because business. it's not going to work that way. 
Yeah, and I think I totally agree with you. It's it is about being prepared. It's about putting in the commitment up front now so that when Jesus does come you are prepared to meet your maker, right? Mm-hmm. And it it even, you know, I'm reminded of earlier stuff from from Matthew 24 where he's saying, you know, it's going to happen. There's going to be people in the fields. Don't go back home. Flee to the mountains. You should have what you need mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. Don't go back. Just just go. Go to the mountains. Flee. If you're here, don't go back to what you think is safe. Just, you know, go this way. And it... The more I the more I think about it, the more I am I guess contemplating, you know, what it means to be an adult, what it means to to mature, what it means to um have wisdom and what and what all those things mean coupled with what God has laid out for us in the Bible. You know, you begin to see this pattern of preparedness mm-hmm. and that is something that I think I am starting to circle around uh, the idea of in my life of you know I I look the way that I look not like bone structure wise but like you know body mass wise <laughs> I make lots of references to my weight. I'm not that fat. I'm just heavier than I want to be. But do I work out? Uh, you no. are working out. <laughs> I was, but then my boss was like, all right, I'm working out at 645 in the morning because we just can't, we can't, we just literally can't afford to take an hour and a half off in the middle of the day. We just have too much work, mm-hmm. which is a really good problem to have for business. You know, it's just a bad problem for me to have because I live 40 minutes from where I work. So if I wanted to work out at 640, I'm leaving the house at six. We have a newborn child. My wife, I'm using that as an excuse, not because there's no way in God's green earth, I would leave my house at six to go work out, which is the actual truth. Um, so I was working out, but I, I drink pretty much what I want. I eat what I want. And I have a, you know, I've got a nice dad bod going on. That's a term (laughs) now. Right. Um, but you know, even in considering that, if I were to take the prepared, wise approach to that, I would limit the nice things now and do the work now so that when I'm older, I'm more prepared to handle the aging process or some of the health conditions that can come with become a problem when you're older if you live like a slob when you're in your 20s and your 30s. Mm-hmm. And the same goes here for uh, your marriage, what you put in, the work that you put in now to lay in a solid foundation, to build that relationship, to build that trust, to build that friendship. You can't just wait till you're 80 and go, hey, you want to be friends and really like each other now? (laughs) And flip that switch. That's not how it works, right? Hopefully by the time that you're 80, you look at each other and you go, can you believe everything that we did in the last 50 or 60 years? Unbelievable. What a great time. Look at all the things that we were able to to do and learn from each other and the family that we got to build. And look at what God did through all of our chaos and all of our craziness that he kept us together. And because he kept us together, these things happened. Mm-hmm. You reflect upon the work that you put in beforehand. You don't wait until you're 80 to go, man, 
We've been married for 60 years, and I now just like you. Yeah. No, hopefully not. Because you miss out on the entire joy of a life with the person that you love. Yes. And if you take it to your relationship with God, and it's, it is not about getting into heaven. It's not? No. <laughs> no. That is not the point. That is a perk, right? Sure. But your relationship with Christ is not a means to an end. Yeah. In the sense that you do not believe in Jesus Christ to get out of hell for free. You don't, you know, you believe in Jesus and you build your relationship with him based upon the truth of scripture, which is that we are sinners, that God created us, and that in order to write that relationship, Jesus had to die. And because he did that, we now have access to a relationship with God. And in that relationship, yes, ultimately we wind up in heaven. That is fantastic. And I'm looking forward to that very much. But the purpose of my belief in God is not to necessarily save my butt as much as it is to be in relationship with a man, that's the, the God, <laughs> who created me for a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And that is so much bigger than a get out of hell free card. That's a huge part of it. Don't like I'm trying not to minimize so, that. So so let's say the hell get out of hell free and heaven doesn't exist. Is it still worth being a Christian and seeking God? Let's say let's say we all die when it's all done, we don't exist anymore. Oh is no, life- then then do drugs, party and sleep with everybody. <laughs> but I mean honestly, like so okay, so I shouldn't say let me rephrase. The fact that that eternal life in heaven with God is what happens. That is a big deal. Yes. But that is not the sole purpose for believing in God. Does no, that make more sense? I would agree. Okay. That's what I tried to say the first time. No, and I think you I think you said it. I do. I don't <laughs> but I don't I didn't mean that. In more direct terms, yes. It is it is important. It is it is proof that he is who he says he is, that he is able to do that. But to your point, if if we die and that's it and it's game over, do whatever the hell you want to do. Actually, I don't see why you wouldn't. It makes more sense. Yeah. And, and oh, oh man, okay. You're, I feel like. <laughs> Which leads me to, oh, do I want to go down that road, Dave? I don't know. We, we've had a full show so far, so. There is a there is a, a a dichotomy I see in our culture that is not uh, uh, only seen by me, that uh, conservative Republican Christians who are pro life want nothing to do with refugees or orphans or anything like that. Lock the borders up, you know. We're pro life, but we don't want to actually help anybody out. We just want to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is never going to happen. And then you've got all of these. Uh, and again, we're generalizing here, uh, liberal Democrats, atheists, who are all about social justice and preserving life for refugees and orphans and not so much, you know, unborn children. That, but why is it that Christians are all, about, are all anti-abortion yet want to lock refugees and people seeking political asylum out of the country? I don't know. There's a see now I'm all like thinking about politics now my brain's not working I can't even remember how we got to, to this topic. Well, what did you say that triggered that? 
I don't know what I said. I'm seeing red now. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, and truly, this is this is very much what I've been wrestling with personally over the course of this week. Is can we? All, can we disagree on those kinds of things? Can we disagree and all still be, can we all be Christians and disagree with how we view refugees and whether they should come into this country or not? And is this the same kind of debate that throughout the history of the world has happened with things like infant baptism? how you view the sacraments. Is this, is this an essential? Is this something that we're willing to die on the hill for? Or is this something that is, as I look at scripture, I see this, as you look at scripture, you clearly see something different. Is this essential to whether you and I are Christians, if we disagree on something like this? Infant baptism? No. No. Okay, so refugees. That's a social justice issue. Okay. And to me, when Jesus says, when you cared for the least of these, you cared for me. Mm -hmm. Or when James talks about true religion and what it means to care for the widow, the orphan, and we have people who claim to be Christians saying we don't want to deal with their problems. Like I get that there's geopolitical stuff involved and maybe we want to focus on the widows and orphans and um you know foster kids in our country because that's a huge problem. I I I get that. But when when your when your party line is pro life and you are refusing people a chance at a better life because they come from a country where Muslims live or terrorists might have come from. It, it just, it sounds like scared little children making rules is what it sounds like. And obviously I disagree with them. That much should be evident. Mm-hmm. If not by the tone of my voice, then by the words that I'm using. Um, but what the, the social justice issue to me about the, the, fact that all humans, whether they're born in Iraq, Iran, or West Virginia, or California, are all made in the image of God, whether they are Muslim, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, atheist, it doesn't matter. And claiming to follow Christ and to love Jesus, and then looking at people who need a place to get away from the pain and struggle and uh, sometimes life-threatening situations which political refugees are running from, to deny them that and then go to church on Sunday and feel good about your... Like, that's where it bothers me. Okay, so I have multiple things here. Does that mean, so if somebody says, I don't think refugees should be allowed in this country, does that make that person not a Christian? No, and, and so, uh, like, let me, let me add to my, any time that we mix 
our faith with politics, you're always going to find really, really uncomfortable stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Should America legislate the Bible? No, because it's not a Christian country. It's not a, it's not a country ruled by God as, you know, like, is it, it's just not. And so that's where I come to, like, well, why should I care what Republicans think? Of? I mean, I care about it because I disagree with it, but at the same time, it's like, I'm not surprised. And so I guess my struggle is, and, and I think to your point, can someone say, we don't want refugees in this country and still be a Christian? Yes. But I would really, really, really like to know why that's their stance. Now, this may be an overly simplistic example, but why do you lock your doors in your house at night? Why do I lock my doors at night? Mainly so the wind doesn't blow them off the hinges. <laughs> my doors are always locked. Um, but why do we lock our doors in our houses? False sense of security. Okay. Honestly. That, and, that, and as a police officer, I would agree with you it's on to- that. Yeah, because if someone wants in my house, they're going to get in. They're going to get in my house. I don't have a security system, but I lock. But again, honestly, I lock my doors mainly so curious teenagers don't come looking in my house. Just not because they're bad. They just have nothing else to do, and they decide to do dumb stuff. And also so the wind doesn't rip sure. the doors off of my hinges, because so, it would. So, so I guess one of the things that I would say is, is we all lock our doors at night, and we all go, okay, that's common sense. You lock your doors at night. You keep your family safe. It would be silly to not lock your doors. So how is locking the doors, quote unquote, of the country different in terms of refugees and that sort of a thing? Because the people that are going to come into my house in the middle of the night are going to do so to take things and or cause my family harm, but most likely just to take things. Mm-hmm. I imagine most burglars are not out there to actually hurt people. They're just trying no. to get stuff. stuff to sell. At the same time, the vetting process for the refugee entry system is more often than not, I would dare say far more often than not, going to find the people that are up to no good. And it's going to let the genuinely decent people, and I'm speaking in generalities here, that are genuinely trying to get away from a terrible situation into the country where, guess what? The American dream lives, and anyone, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps and do it. So I think that the difference is, is yes, the vetting process, I feel like, is locking our doors. And then once you meet the stranger and they satisfy your uh, you know, curiosity, your test, then you open the door and let them in. But I think building the wall, essentially, and banning them without actually allowing the vetting process to happen, that I don't understand. You want to make the vetting process harder? Fine. Do it. But just saying we're not going to let any of them in, that doesn't seem like a solution to me. Right. So if I knocked on your door at 2 o'clock in the morning, you probably wouldn't be thrilled with me. No. But ultimately, you're probably going to let me in because you go, okay, I know this guy. He's probably got a good reason for knocking on my door at 2 o'clock in the morning. And versus maybe not so much somebody you don't know. Right? Mm -hmm. And even then, I would venture to guess if somebody gave you a believable enough story and said, my car broke down, 
you're the third house I've knocked on. You are the only one that's answered the door. I'm now here. Can I use your phone? You're probably going to go, okay, you're going to keep the, you're going to keep your, an eye on the guy. You're going to, you know, but ultimately it's not impossible to get to your house, into your house, even in the middle of the night, if I knock and have a reasonable enough reason for doing that. Yeah. It's not like you're going to completely just never let anybody in. Right. And there's okay. a chance that you could be the best storyteller ever and I'll let you in and you slip <laughs> my throat and take all my things. But I still don't but think there's a process involved. Exactly. It's not just simply locking the door and keeping you out. And there's a process in place now. And if, and if this ban is just a temporary stop until that process is hardened, okay. But the idea to me of just locking the door and saying, good luck out there, we're fine here, that to me is unacceptable. That's my issue. And do you think Jesus would do that? Well, lock the door and say, only, only, if we go back to the text we're talking about. Well, dun, that's dun, kind dun, of dun, <laughs> Yeah, see, we're on the same page here. <laughs> only when the time comes. And I feel like a lot of Christians are like, oh, it's okay. He'll let you in anyways. No, no, he won't. No, he won't. No, he will not. That door will be locked. But not before, what, it's been 2,000 years? At least. At, well. Yeah, since he was born. Um, I just looked at my watch like it's going to tell me what year it is. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, so I, I think up to a certain point when he comes back the second time and it's like, all right, the jig's up. And that's when Judgment Day happens. I've got no problem with it there. Mm-hmm. But the president is not God. He is not the second coming of Jesus. No. And And, again, this is not a country built on the Bible. So if he wants to lock the door and Congress is somehow going to let it happen, even though Geneva convention probably won't let it happen. Like there's, there's like some serious, like maybe war crimes. So. And again, I, I personally, for me, again, everybody's got to believe what they got to believe. And ultimately every individual has to answer to God. But I never saw Jesus aspiring to a political office. Doesn't mean Christians shouldn't, just like our earlier conversation of our influence should be whatever God has called us individually to. But Jesus didn't model that for us. In fact, didn't really call his fellow, his followers to be that way. Um, nor did he see government as the answer to how Christianity is going to be spread. And many times we've harped on the the prosperity and the health and wealth gospel. It's not in there. It's just not in there. And I feel like there's so much of this kind of being all brought together of this idea of America being a Christian nation and God wants to bless us. It's a very myopic view of Christianity, the Bible, Jesus, God, the world, and what he is doing. And ultimately, for as easy as it is to say in my uh, nice house, 
He doesn't call us to be comfortable and secure time and time again. I don't think he ever does. No. I mean, the only comfort we have is in him, not in our stuff. Yes. So, oh man, we really got pl- <laughs> I know, a little political there. A- <laughs> You're poking my buttons, Dave. <laughs> I guess. I guess my thought is this. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me about the whole refugee thing, that's okay. Um, because in the grand scheme of things, no, I don't even want to, I don't even know where I was going to go with that. I'm all frazzled now. Um, I got, I never get that. (laughs) Dave picking on me. The point is that we need to be prepared, right? Yep. And we said it before and we'll say it again. The way that we live our lives should not be dictated upon when Jesus is coming back. Yeah. Uh, the way that we live our lives should be dictated upon the truth of God, regardless of when Jesus is coming back. Because we don't know when. No. So be prepared. Have enough oil in your lamp. What, like Whatever the metaphor you want to use is, is do the work, put in the time now to build your relationship with God. Yeah. So that when the time comes, you're not scrambling and wishing you would have yep. had a stronger relationship, that you would have had uh, the truth of God more lodged in your heart, that you would have been part of the kingdom. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're all going to die. And I personally have come to the conclusion that the purpose of my time here on this earth is to get to know him. And I'm hoping that when I get to heaven and I see him, that transition is as seamless as possible. It's, it's just a continuation of the relationship that him and I have had and that I've been preparing myself for the next life. I haven't, you know, um, yeah, I, I, exactly what I said. I hope it is a seamless transition in terms of, I don't know if that's possible, going from a finite world to an infinite world and going from not being able to see God to seeing God and being in his, not being in his presence to being in his presence. But I think that's ultimately what this life is about, is getting to know him regardless of where we are. Um, because whether you lived in a million-dollar mansion or you're a nomad in Somalia. This earth is going to seem, it, it, will, it, it will be a hellhole compared to what eternity in the kingdom is like. And if we're grasping to anything that is material in this world, it's just not going to last. doesn't mean we can't enjoy those things. doesn't mean that they're not a gift from God, but it's not what we're ultimately striving for. And I think if we live with the perspective with an eye on eternity in that we're, we need to know him and be in a relationship with him. Um, ultimately we're going to, well, I don't know. I, I, I can't speak definitively as I want to, but I think it's about knowing him and, and preparing for that relationship that we'll have for eternity with him. So, 
Agreed. I'm going to look for Johnny Cash when I get there. Oh, I haven't even thought about that. Yeah, he's one of the first people I want to talk to. Oh, man. I'll be up all night now. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the end of episode 89, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to get in touch, at David J. Hogue, at Cam Brennan, or email hello at supermegacorp.net. Check out patreon.com slash supermegacorp. <laughs> and we'll be back next time with episode 90. Bye. Bye.